Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. Are we on the verge of seeing a safer, more reliable gene editing technology? And what is our relationship with the moon 50 years after Apollo 11? But first, businesses are seeing an infinite possibility of sending new technology into space. The advance of smaller and cheaper satellites have led to opportunities for innovation which opens up a whole new world, or perhaps out of this world, of in-orbit economies. To hear more about these new market areas for Earth observation, we're joined by Hal Hodson, the Economist Asia technology correspondent from Beijing. Hello, Hal. Hello, Ken. How are you? I'm great. What's already up there? Up there right now, for the most part, are very, very big satellites that do things like move video around the planet. There's a bunch of weather satellites that are either owned by governments or operated on behalf of governments. And there are a few what are sort of generically known as small sats, which are kind of satellites that are much, much smaller and much more standardized and simple than uh, your traditional great big giant satellites. And so why are we poised for a new boom in satellites? Basically because the costs have come down of putting devices in space. Probably most of our listeners will know what SpaceX is. That's Elon Musk's rocket company, which has done a lot of work on reducing the costs of launch. And while we already know about that, what we're seeing now is new kinds of businesses that rely on these reduced costs and that can do cool stuff from space and essentially gather forms of data which people on the ground, businesses on Earth, want to buy in order to do interesting things. Okay, so what are these new forms of business? There are loads of them. A good place to start is the different sort of things you can measure from space. There is something called synthetic aperture radar, which if you know what normal radar is, essentially just bouncing a radio wave off something. Synthetic aperture radar means you do that many, many times very, very fast, and you use clever software to build a really accurate picture of the thing in radar. And you can use this to count the number of ships that go in and out of ports. The CEO of a company called Capella Space told me that he he can use his SAR system to bounce a radio frequency wave into an oil tank and measure exactly how much oil is in there. So things like hedge funds are really interested in this kind of data. Now, this sort of stuff was done already through satellites, small satellites, but not as small. And it was done through visual imagery. Why is this sort of technique needed? It's needed because the existing way of doing this for the most part is through optical imaging, using the visual wavelengths that humans can see with their eyes. And this has a number of problems. The biggest one is that it doesn't operate at night. It also can't really see through clouds and doesn't have very good resolution. And things like synthetic aperture radar, there's also hyperspectral imagery, which is making images that are at wavelengths that the eye can't see. And there's also sort of turning the whole thing around and just detecting radio waves that are coming from Earth. So essentially counting and tracking 
where big radio signals are coming from on Earth in order to figure out where things like illegal shipping are going based on their radio communications. So it essentially just gives you a better window. Sounds great. But if there's going to be so many of these small little things floating up above us, isn't that going to be a real problem? They're going to collide with each other. And if you wanted to put a rocket into space, you have to worry about them. That's absolutely right. And that, that in itself is stimulating entire new businesses to try and solve that problem. There is a Japanese company called Astroscale, which has been funded to the tune of $120 million, which is essentially building a kind of small sat ambulance. The idea of which is that it sits on the ground right next to the wherever the rocket launches. And if there's a problem with one of these, you know, thousands of small sats up there, it gets launched at the next available opportunity to go up, grab that malfunctioning satellite and pull it down out of the range of all the other satellites so that they don't collide. And the big problem with collision is that if you do have two satellites that hit each other and sort of spin off their orbits, perhaps into other satellites, you can get this thing called Kessler syndrome, which is essentially a chain reaction that wipes out an entire orbitals worth of satellites. And that's, that's obviously very, very bad for everyone. Traditionally, these small sats are so simple and so tiny that they can't fit the normal propulsion systems that you put on a big satellite. But there's a bunch of companies that have been shrinking down systems known as ion drives so that they can fit on these small sats and give them a tiny bit of maneuverability in their own right. Okay. So one of the controversies that have come up about launching these fleets of small satellites into space and the low orbit kinds of themselves in particular, is the light pollution that will admit that will change observation on Earth. What's happening there? This came about because Elon Musk's SpaceX has a sideline, of course it does, in the internet satellite business, which is put a bunch of satellites in space in low orbits where they're closer to Earth, and you can relay, they're basically like cell phone masts in space, and they orbit the planet, and as they do, they beam internet up and down. And this system called Starlink was launched a few weeks ago, and when it was launched, people saw these satellites orbiting over at night, and they were pretty bright. There's still a open question of exactly how bright they're going to be once they're in their final altitude and at their final sort of orientation with respect to the sun. I think that what people saw at first is not as bright as it's going to be. And I guess whenever we're outside, we should just look up and smile and wave because it's going to be spying on us at all times. Well, it's interesting, right? Because the commercial companies that are doing this, especially synthetic aperture radar, they're about 30 years behind where the U.S. government is with synthetic aperture radar. And the origin story for this technology is that the U.S. Navy realized that they could figure out, and this boggles my mind so much that I'm I sort of can't quite believe if it's true, but this is apparently the origin story, that the U.S. Navy figured out how to detect Russian submarines that were underwater just by measuring the curvature of the ocean above them as they traveled using synthetic aperture radar. That's how precise this stuff is. And so, yeah, we definitely live in a world where, for the most part, you can be watched as you move around. The question, you know, comes back to our old debates about who's in control and who gets to know who's watching who. But I do think that low Earth orbit observation adds a whole new layer to it for sure. Sure. But if we're worried about the misuse of this, one side might be by the commercial sector, but the other side might be by terrorists who now have the same information advantage that used to only exist for militaries. Cross-border data flows to various nefarious actors or, you know, actors you think are nefarious are already super controversial, whether it's China or ISIS. You know, there's lots of countries that are deeply concerned that certain actors are accessing data about the world that they sort of wish they didn't. This is one of the big problems of the age. I can only see satellite observation adding to it, yeah.
So, Hal, let's do this. Let's track it together from Earth, and let's talk more about this because it's a big issue. Sure thing, Ken. Good stock. Thank you very much. And you can read more about the new industries in space in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. And if you're already a subscriber, find a friend, subscribe for them too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Next up, a Russian scientist has announced his ambition to repeat a Chinese gene editing experiment on embryos that led to the birth of two babies last year with modified CCR5 genes. It was universally condemned on the grounds of safety and ethics. The technology of altering DNA, or CRISPR-Cas editing, to help with disease is still at an early stage, and there are worries about unforeseen consequences. But the science is moving rapidly, and new developments point the way to making it safer. Natasha Loder is The Economist Health Policy Editor. Hello, Natasha. Hello, Ken. Natasha, there is a lot happening in the CRISPR world. Yes, indeed, there is. First of all, we've got this Russian scientist who wants to repeat the gene editing experiment on embryos of last year. We've also got a couple of papers that have just come out which have looked at a really innovative way of improving on the CRISPR technology that everyone's been working on since 2012. And lastly, the pharma firm GSK has announced that it's going to support some pretty fundamental work using CRISPR to help us really understand when you make changes to genes, what's going on inside cells. So a busy week. So CRISPR is going from the lab bench to the hospital. Yeah, that's right. There are a whole raft of firms that are trying to create new medicines using CRISPR, whether it's in heart disease, beta thalassemia, or even HIV. I think most of the early applications are likely to be either in genetic disorders or perhaps in cancers, one of the options for using gene editing in creating a therapy is that you can, say, take a T cell out of the body and you can use gene editing to sort of reprogram it so that when you put it back in the body, that it targets cancer. And we already actually sort of do this sort of thing right now. Is The technology is called CAR-T, but we use viruses to sort of make the changes that we need to make these T-cells target cancer. So yeah, there's there's a lot going on commercially. Now, for many people, I think we should back up and just give a little tutorial. What is CRISPR-Cas editing? I think the easiest way of understanding what CRISPR-Cas editing is, is to imagine it as a little molecular machine uh, that comes in two parts. And one part of the molecular machine It's a sort of GPS, a homing device, a programmable system where you can tell it where to go. And then the other part of this molecular machine is a pair of scissors. So very bluntly speaking, this is a pair of scissors you can send to any part of the genome and cut where you want. And that's it, really. How does it know where to go? 
How does it know what to cut? You tell it. And so when I say it's programmable, the, the CRISPR part of the molecular machine, you can actually put a sequence of DNA into that bit of the molecular machine and it will seek a matching or corresponding sequence inside the genome. And it will cut when it finds that matching bit of DNA. Okay. So what are the risks of using this technique? There are about three broad potential problems, which I'll summarize very quickly. The first one is that it cuts in the wrong place. That's something that we see you know, often in studies of CRISPR. Although it's very accurate, it can cut in the wrong place. The second problem is that the act of repairing the cut can go wrong in some way. For example, some random bit of information could be included. We see that when gene editing occurs. And there are sort of concerns that this can cause cells to go haywire or perhaps even trigger a cancer. More problematically with CRISPR editing, I think, is the sort of fact that often we really don't know enough about the gene to make the change. Now, when you're making a medicine for someone who's going to drop dead of some awful disease, it perhaps doesn't matter so much that you don't know everything about the gene you're changing. But if you're trying to make a change to a healthy embryo, right, say, for example, this CCR5 gene, supposedly this has a beneficial impact because it prevents HIV entering the cell. But there's all sorts of things we don't know about CCR5. And recently it's been tied to higher mortality. And so until we kind of really understand the nature of the changes we make, I think it's unreasonable to imagine that we can use it on healthy individuals or healthy embryos to make changes. And I really strongly feel that, you know, this technology needs to sort of remain in the sort of medical sphere rather than the fertility sphere, where regulators can assess whether the risks of giving this treatment to someone outweigh the benefits that these people are going to have. Is the medical establishment too ambitious? Are the regulators too cautious? And how do we set that balance just right? CRISPR-Cas gene editing is really still at the early stage of its development cycle. And I mean, hopefully it won't take as long as gene therapies did. But, you know, we saw in the early stages of gene therapies that we had an accident, someone died. And, you know, we were too quick. I think everyone who's working on this technology has been really careful, certainly in this country and America. I wouldn't necessarily say in China. I mean, there are concerns in China with some of the experiments that have been done. There has been clinical work done. Um, Well, I'm thinking of just that. And if a Russian scientist is now trying to repeat a Chinese gene editing experiment, it seems like the two countries that have some of the least good governance that I know of are doing things that wouldn't be tolerated in the West. So clearly something's amiss. I think that's a fair observation, Ken. What I would say is that since her Jiang Kuei actually did the experiment, the Chinese government has very much clamped down on this sort of work. And I think it's unlikely we would see a repeat of this anytime soon. With regards to the Russians, the Russian scientist is saying he would like to do it. He isn't saying he is going to do it. He's saying he's going to apply to do it. And so therein lies the nub of a discussion which needs to be had by the Russian government, which is the extent to which they're willing to tolerate this sort of risky research. Yeah, it's perfectly reasonable to wonder whether, you know, culturally and politically, they have a completely different attitude towards this. What I do think is true is that the scientific case against 
doing this kind of work is a strong one. I mean, this is irrespective of the, the moral case, but I think scientifically we can say this is not a good idea. Natasha, it's always incredible to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Now, regular Babbage listeners know that occasionally on the show, when we're sort of feeling in a pithy mood, we decide to run a contest in which we give away a book. And on a previous episode, we decided to give away the book The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation by Carl Benedict Frey, who was a guest on the show of that week. The question that we had for our listeners was this. If AI and robots are threatening human jobs, in the future, what jobs might humans steal from robots? We got lots of great answers, but our favorite was the one from Gregory Taylor, who wrote, When robots become so productive that they earn leisure time, they'll want to be entertained by something spontaneous, non-algorithmic, so they'll eschew AI-written movies and shows in exchange for court jesters and comedians. We like that idea because what else is more human than being a jester or being a comedian? I can't imagine an AI doing that. So we thank everyone who emailed an answer, and in particular to Gregory Taylor, and we'll be sending you a copy of the book. Keep listening to Babbage. We'll have more contests in the future. Finally, this year is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And I think everybody on Earth knows that because actually memorabilia and movies and books are absolutely everywhere. Luckily, at The Economist, it's here too. One of our editors, Oliver Morton, has just written a new book, The Moon, A History for the Future. And Tom Standage, The Economist's deputy editor, spoke with him about his interest with Earth's closest neighbor and asked him why now is a good time to look at our fascination with the moon. People love anniversaries, and this is a particularly interesting one because for people who don't think about it very much, there's this question of, well, 50 years ago, haven't been back since. I mean, the last human mission to the moon was in 72. Why is that? That's a question I hear quite often. Why haven't people been back? And the other reason why now is a good time is that more seriously than ever before, people are actually talking about going on or back to the moon. And just in a, a couple of weeks ago, Vice President Pence said that the United States should aim to get back by 2024. Tied in with all this, there's also a lot of interest in sending at least robots to the moon by countries that haven't previously been able to do such things. There was a heroic and in the end slightly disappointing attempt by Israel recently, uh, as one of the people involved in the Israeli project said to me last week, we did hit the moon, we just didn't <laughs> land on it. It's hard to miss, though. <laughs> no, no, no. If you look at the history of moon exploration, you'll find that most of the early probes of the moon missed. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that big compared to space, which, as we know, is really big. And so the talk of a Japanese mission, there will be private American missions, which will be supported by NASA in various ways. There's going to be an Indian mission later this year. It's the easiest thing to do in space that's not just being in orbit around the Earth. And that doesn't make it easy, as the Israelis just discovered. But it's certainly doable to people with modern technology. So we're going to see it done a lot more. So there's this weird phenomenon that we look back 50 years and see people doing something that we don't seem to be able to do anymore. So sort of technology seems to have gone backwards. But more recently, we have seen a very rapid advance in the sorts of things people can do in space and the range of people who can do them. So have we just sort of caught up with where we expected to be? Is that kind of how people see it? There was a really interesting step back or step away or step in a different direction at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, 
people began to have a different relationship to how they thought about the technologies of, quote, progress. So aircraft stopped going faster. Um, indeed, and the aircraft have and now go more slowly than they did in the in the days of Concord. The first serious doubts about nuclear power started to get popular expression. At the same time, and partly because of the space program, a sense of the Earth both as a whole and as an endangered entity started to strengthen. Now, I'm not remotely saying that environmentalism is in any way anti-technology, but it takes a different view of technology to the sort of like faster, cheaper, stronger or basically just faster and stronger, cheaper never really came into it, sort of mentality of just going places. And so the people who could afford to go to the moon reconsidered whether that was a thing they wanted to do. And now it's easier to go to the moon and more people are capable. So they're not going for the same reasons as Apollo, because Apollo was a statement that America as a superpower could spend anything to do anything, even the most extraordinary thing anyone had ever thought of, which turned out to be going to the moon. That's not a statement you can make anymore because we know that people can go to the moon. There's still a level of national competition in it, but there's a lot of other things at play too. Okay, your book considers the moon from a really dazzling variety of different angles. So what are some of those angles and what was your aim in sort of assembling all of these different views? Well, I think as now is a good time to think about the moon, you have to think about what it's meant to people as a piece of science, as a light in the sky, as an objective, as it was in Apollo, as a spur, and also to think about those reasons why it was neglected. So I think one of the things I think about the moon is that although it's a very singular thing. It's the only single object in the universe that all humans that can see and have grown to be able to walk outside at night, they've all seen the moon and they've seen the features on the moon. They've all seen the sun too, but they haven't stared at it and they don't see any features on it. So given that singularity, it's really interesting to me that the moon is also two-faced or more than two-faced. It's got a lot of different meanings. And that idea of something very real and physical and just a big lump of rock in the sky that everyone's seen is also capable of supporting lots of different histories and meanings and possibilities. That's what attracted me to do it. And is, is there a sense that your book is a sort of time capsule of what the moon means culturally right now because it might be about to change in a big way? Are you trying to sort of capture that? I hadn't thought of it like that, but I think there's certainly a truth to that. And it's, it's to mix metaphors. It's a time capsule and also a springboard because towards the end of the book, I'm trying to think about what does what we know about the moon so far say about what might go on in the future. So how do you expect our perception of the moon to change in the future? I mean, when it's inhabited, for example, that will just mean we think about it in a different way when we look up at it, won't it? I'm sure that it will. And in the late 60s, early 70s, many people expressed real anxiety about the idea of looking up at the moon and seeing something that had been so much part of the natural universe, now part of the human realm. And I suspect some people will think that too. I, I'm not sure we will see a moon that's ever permanently inhabited. I mean, it depends slightly if you think Antarctica is permanently inhabited today. There are people on it all the time, but the same people are not on it all the time. And I think the moon's more likely to be like that. But the other thing is, again, a sort of like multiplicity of visions because huge though my respect for the Apollo astronauts is, they were all white Americans, mostly from the military. So although they had a lot, had a very wide range of fascinating responses to their experience of going to the moon, that's a reasonably small subset of humanity. So it was interesting that when Vice President Pence talked about the moon 
in April, he um, specifically said that it was part of uh, America's vision to land the first woman on the moon. But there'll be the first people from other cultures, from non-Western cultures. There's a Japanese businessman and fashion designer, Mr. Maizawa, who has made a contract with SpaceX to fly him and some artists around the moon. I think the moon will become more multivariant, more multifaceted. And I think that would be well good. Thanks very much, Oliver. Thanks, Tom. And that's all for this week's Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier. And in London... Houston, we have a problem. This is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.